In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. A new book called Dating Tips for the Unemployed follows its hero, Iris Smiles, as she haplessly meanders through New York City looking for love and work, and then finding darkly humorous ways to sabotage that love and work. The book's author is also named Iris Smiles. She's earned her reputation as a wickedly funny chronicler of disaffection, family dysfunction, and self-loathing. Smiles was precocious from a very early age, with highbrow literary tastes in the fifth grade, although she found her love for the classics via an unexpected inspiration. There were these cartoons of Mr. Magoo, and it was like Mr. Magoo does the classics. And there was one adaptation of Moby Dick where Mr. Magoo plays Ishmael, the lone survivor of the Pequod, of who in this case is a 70-year-old you know, man going yeah. blind. And, yeah, this blind, deaf millionaire. He, he's, the only one oh, who, no. he's the only one who survives. Anyway, I was so taken with it. I was in fifth grade, so I went to the library and got the book, and I was trying to read that. And then my, um, my school teacher saw the book on my desk and started laughing at me which I thought there was a gentler way to suggest that maybe it was a bit advanced. But I showed him. Where, where did you grow up? What town? In Dix Hills, Long Island. So that was very, was it very wooded back then? Because you said you'd like to, quote, go around and climb trees. It wasn't really that w- wooded, but I found the trees and, and those I climbed. Um, All three trees in that <laughs> block, you climbed them. It was somewhat, I mean, there were trees around. It was a suburb. Um, but also, Dix Hills, interesting, it's, is where John Coltrane went to die. Um, I found that out recently. I'm not sure why he is went there. Is that near your house? Were you there when he died? <laughs> no. But also, and also, it's near, um, speaking of literature, I grew up on Ibsen Court, which all the streets on my block were named after authors. Yes. But no one knew, because I think the planners of the town had these like high hopes for the people who would move in, and instead it was just all of us, and it was more mall culture. So um, They thought it would be like a bunch of literary... Right. So, for example, I grew up near the Walt Whitman Mall, because Walt Whitman's birthplace is in Melville, but no one knew that Walt Whitman was a poet. So when it came time to learn about Walt Whitman in, in high school, everyone was like, oh, this guy's named after our mall. <laughs> It must not be that bad. <laughs> Are your parents uh, super brainiac people? Are they like reading all the time and playing opera in the house? You live in a very culture, no, cultivated house. No, um, no culture. 
<laughs> no culture. No, actually, that's not true. Well, my parents were working so much when I was growing up. Do you have siblings? I have two older brothers. So you, you have two older brothers and then you? Yes. But my father was a big reader, and so, but we didn't have any books in the house because why buy them when you could borrow them from the library? So in the summertime, we would go to the library and like get a whole bunch of books on long loan, and then we would take them with us to Greece, where my mother's from, and read them over there and get them ruined on the beach, which always excited me because I thought I'm going to bring the books. I brought the books back ruined, but I thought I was bringing them back with the secret history and how lucky right. for someone else right. to have this them after from, they've been all yeah. over the world. This is this ordinary water stains on this book. <laughs> right. Some grease. <laughs> now, the, the, uh, now, now, so your own connection, which lives on now, correct? You, you, you live in Greece part-time. Well, I really just say that to make myself sound more interesting. Right. Um, how much of what you say is just to make you sound more interesting, and how much of it is fact? Um, very little of what I say is to make myself sound more interesting, but some of what I write is to make myself sound more interesting. So I never would have said I live in Greece for part of the time. Um, but I did write that in my bio to give myself a little extra glamour. Okay, I live there like three, four months of the year. You do now? Yeah, except, except for right that's now. That's a fact. That's right true. Now that I'm, right now <laughs> right. I'm here. Now, what did your dad do? Um, he, well, growing up, my parents um, had a party store, but... Uh, <laughs> did they really? Yeah, yeah. I grew up with all sorts of... I mean, I thought that that's what they were into, so I really embraced that hard and was really into partying for a long time. But it turns out it was just like they got into it accidentally. They're just, you know, business people so you're talking about like a kid's party store with like they, they'd sell party supplies and novelty items so like i grew up joy with a, buzzers yeah a lot of whoopee cushions around my house like tons um we've only recently gotten through all of them you know uh yeah i didn't have a lot of like my parents weren't into um material objects so i didn't have which is important in suburban long island i didn't have like the best clothes but like on halloween i was the best dressed yeah. like the only every other yeah. year was like a nightmare for me i mean every other time of year all the kids would you know tease me but on halloween i was like i had everything you were a god <laughs> yes. you were a goddess yeah i don't want to say were you close to your parents but you think your parents understood you did they cultivate sides of you that are have you, have kind of evolve now your writing did you show your parents your writing and did you share with them stuff you wrote um no well my were you writing back then i was i was always writing a journal and my father asked me once if he could if he could read what i was writing and so i said okay but after i die because you wrote i really want to kill my father <laughs> no it was just that's how it's Probably done better you, <laughs> you know my posthumous papers sure. you don't you don't publish your your journal before you die Although I have published a selection of my journal in my upcoming book. I just slipped it in there just to promote it. But you wrote a journal and you didn't share it with anybody. No, that was the whole, you know, the whole point of it. Um, and that it would be published posthumously. Right. Is it <laughs> But now <laughs> I'm, not in a sure safe if, place? I'm not sure about that anymore. I mean, that was my idea when I took it up at, in fourth grade. <laughs> right. But, you know, my legacy, as every fourth grader should be concerned with. But in, in retrospect, I'm not sure it's such a... I've been looking over the pages, and I'm not, I'm not sure if I actually am going to publish them. After I die, I might have to destroy them. You started writing that when you were how old? Fourth grade, I think. What kinds of things did you write in fourth grade? Um, well, that's... Uh, you'll just have to wait, Alec. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Give us just a vague notion of what you wrote. Was it all about, like, you know... Today I walked home from school. It was cold. You know, or was it, was it beyond that? Was it like... 
Well, it changed. So there were sometimes there were crushes, right. a lot of crushes. Um, I think, which you might think sounds adolescent, but that's what the romantic poets oh, were no, doing. Oh, no, I don't. Yeah, no, I don't I think mean, that's adolescent at all. <laughs> so there's a long tradition of that sort of thing. Um, you know, and, and then I was trying to work on my, uh, my descriptions for a while. So I would describe water and trees. How many pages? <laughs> <laughs> Mostly it's the good stuff. We need to edit down this book, I think. We need to um, edit it down. It's volumes. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think I'm actually going to publish it any, anymore. Uh, that was the idea then, though. But one time I had, when I first came out of college and I had started, I, had a, I wanted to be a writer, and so I had written this thing, and I had this idea. I told my parents, you know, instead of getting a job, I'm going to be a columnist because that's really easy. I Is mean, it? No. Right. <laughs> like, you you, go, yeah, it's just what you said. What you say and what's real are well, just Well, no, two. I mean, that's, I, I was at the point where I thought you just want to be something and then you do it. Right. Um, so, so I had read them this thing that I had written. I mean, I thought it was funny, but their faces kind of just fell because it was really uh, depressing, it turns out. Anyway, the point is don't show your work to your parents. They won't get it because they just look at it to sort of like figure out what's wrong with you, you know, like some kind of Rosetta Stone to like where they failed rather than seeing its literary merit. Like, you know, where they failed is pretty much where my writing succeeds, I think. <laughs> and neither of them were writers ever. Uh, well, my father's creative. So he's, he used to write and to do different – he has a sort of artistic temperament. When does your writing change beyond uh, the – journal that we're never going to be reading? Um, well, I guess I didn't really begin writing properly until I was around 28 or 29. I mean, I was writing before that and fancied myself a writer, but I didn't really become dis- I was kind of a, more of a dilettante. Um, so and what I- changed? What, what were you, in the gap between 10 and 28, what were you doing? You went to college for what? Oh, I went to, um, I went to NYU to study acting. Um, what were your feelings about that? Oh, it was, uh, you know, I wanted to be an actress, but there was a lot of time. There, I missed academics, you know, at, um, especially at NYU. It's a conservatory program, so it's a, a lot of money to be pretending to be in a large body of water or holding a coffee cup for, like, hours and hours every yeah, day. That's exactly the two analogies I always <laughs> mention to people. I say, you're hip deep in some viscous <laughs> substance. <laughs> And now let's change the viscosity and change and change. And then everybody wore black clothes and smoked and drank a lot of coffee. I did that for two years, principally because— Did you go to a studio? Yeah, I was in the Strasbourg studio. So, so was I. Really? So that's why you say hip-deep in gravy and drinking coffee. Yeah. That's what I was. You went to 15th Street? Uh-huh. Oh my, who were your teachers? Irma Sandri? No. Marsha um, Haufrecht? No. Are Jeffrey you Horn? Names? No. Oh, yes, yes, Jeffrey Horn. 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 He was my teacher, Horn. Oh. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was, that was, I, I enjoyed it. I just, um, I just wanted to study more things while I was in school. And then I kind of got away from it. I think it was a very good thing because I guess as an actor, you have to audition a lot. And I don't think I, you know, I guess that's your real job, not actually acting. I mean, for most people, few people actually have the opportunity. I think that's, that, that's, that's potentially right. And I also think that the job is really what do you do with yourself when you're not acting? Yeah. And I always say to people, the, the task is to find out how much you like acting because you're going to get to do so little of it. So what I found out when I was at acting school and why I st- stayed with it for two years is I really – I had discovered the nightlife in New York City. 
And I had never had a social life in high school because I had so many, you know. My I, God, you're my doppelganger. Keep going. Really? <laughs> exactly what happened to me. I'm in New York. I got a couple bucks in my pocket. I'm like, let's party. Yeah, well, Let's it get was wasted. It was extraordinary, yeah. and I mean, as a as a as a young woman in New York City, you're really sort of taken up. And I was weird in high school, you know, because I was really too enthusiastic. I was involved in all of these extracurricular activities, and I was in the. I founded the debate club with one other with one other student. He was the president because he was a senior, and I was the vice president because I was a freshman, and we were the only members. There was the Club for Independent Thought. There was the Drama Club, of course, and then I was president of my class. And um, what else? Oh, I was, in the, I was in the kick line, the dance team, the swim team. I was in running, but then uh, my knees gave out. So I was just really p- busy all the time. Um, but then when I came to college, it was like all of a sudden you don't have to do anything. You, don't, you barely have to go to class. There's no the work drama required program. of you. Yeah, so I was like, oh, now I can just... So the real work was at night, you know, going out, being out until like five in the morning yeah. and sort Where of... Where would you go? Um, at that time, let's see, there was a... I remember the first time I went to a nightclub called Chaos, and it was like the world broke open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and the thing is, I was so weird in high school, but then all of these men, they thought I was so sophisticated and interesting. That's right. what they said. Right. I understand, you know. Yeah. And they were like, you don't really, you don't seem 18. I thought for sure you were 21. And I thought this was, that meant I was sophisticated. They were just saying, like, I thought you were, like, legal and on the right. level yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I could feed you I drinks I wouldn't and I wouldn't get in trouble. <laughs> as I'm passing you this uh, Manhattan. Yeah. When you stopped uh, going to the drama program and you transferred to Gallatin, correct? Yes, that's right. Uh, and when you transferred to Gallatin, you studied philosophy and literature? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's basically... What do they call it at Gallatin? They call it individualized study, so uh, basically you could just... Just read a lot of books. String together, yeah. Just read as something. many books as possible. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then when you left, in your heart, you left acting. You did not only leave the acting program, you decided, I'm not going to be an actress. No, or did you not do that? I, won, I figured I'd be an actress after, after college, but I just didn't need to do that. To uh, study acting. Yeah, I could do that later, but then the further I got from it, though. So you went two years to uh, Gallatin, and you, and you were studying independent thought. Were you writing then? I was. I was writing poetry. Right. But you, but you discount that and say no serious writing till twenty eight. Why? No, I was writing somewhat seriously, but I mean, I wasn't writing with the kind of rigor to really put together a body of work. You know, I was dabbling or calling myself a writer, but I mean, you really need to put in many, many hours—well, hours every day—to be a writer uh, consistently. Sure. Um. So before that, I just did a lot of drinking and talking about writing and then, you know, r- r- a little writing. And when you say you did a lot of drinking, was that something that you were doing um, with groups of people, with friends, and it was all social and carefree and reckless? Or were you like going home and cracking open a bottle of uh, Old Smuggler and having that at four in the morning by yourself? Or both? Um, yeah, both. I mean, I guess when I first started uh, drinking, I actually started drinking... Um, I, I mean, yeah, I guess there were a few times where I drank alone, mainly because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing it out of peer pressure. Right. <laughs> do I really right. enjoy this? It turns out right. I did. I don't need you to do this. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, it was both social and, you know, and then eventually it's just it's great all the time. 
And were you crushing on these men that were trying to buy you these Manhattans when you were trying to figure out if you were really 21 years old? Um, Some of them I liked. I guess sometimes I just liked that they liked me. You know, it's always... You wanted to be adored. Yeah. Uh. Doesn't everyone? (laughs) Two years at Gallatin, so you're done after four years. Mm -hmm. And you leave college and you say you want to what? Well, I wanted to be a writer, Obviously, at that point, I mean, I always, knew that. I always wanted to. So, act, a, so acting's over. You want to be well, a no, I still wanted to be an actor. I mean, and I had thought maybe I'd be a movie star to support my writing. <laughs> you know, reasonable stuff. There you go again. And um, and then I then I had an idea to maybe be a a business mogul to support my acting, right. which would support the writing. Right. Um, so I. There was no human a, rights work involved. <laughs> it was all business mogul, movie star. Yeah. Well, Saudi no, princess. I, I actually, I mean, I, I did. I was a teacher. I taught. I, and I so so. I'm, but I, but I didn't do it for any good reason. I mean, I had. I was teaching with Teach for America teachers and teaching fellows at a, at a at a troubled school in the South Bronx. How long did you do that? Um, I did it for a year, and then it was the school was taken over by the state, so they got rid of everyone, and then I went to um, then I went to a different school. How many years total teaching? Two. Two, you, two that I was teaching uh, middle school. So you took two years to teach for no good reason. Well, because I, I think because I needed a job. I mean that I didn't have any good intentions that I was going to save anyone. But I think this is why I lasted at the at this public school because all of the Teach for America fellows quit within a month because you know they were being threatened and things like that. So were they being threatened by the students? Yes, to both of the I, en- I eventually ended up having to teach gym too because both of the gym teachers by the end of the year were jumped. I mean, it was a very rough school. Really? And Did so you, they were you, gave were you up. assaulted at all? No, but I was often sore from breaking up fights. What was it in your in your mind that you thought you were you were born to referee fights among middle school children in the Bronx? Well, I just needed. I mean, a, I just have this image job. of you being like, you know, here, here now, enough of that, <laughs> and you're like stepping in between like somebody with a broken bottle and a chair. <laughs> that, no, actually, one time someone did have a chair over another another kid's head. That wasn't actually that wasn't one time. Um, How many fights did you break up during uh, your two year career? Oh, it was multiple times a day. Right. And then ended after two years. Why? Well, in order for me to escape to graduate school. And you went to graduate school where? Um, I went to City College to study writing. For how long? Um, I tried to stretch that out as long as possible. (laughs) Again, I mean, that's why I say, first of all, the truth is graduate school is most of the time, unless someone's becoming a doctor, it's pretty much a shelter for for kids who just don't want to grow up. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, that's why I had even considered a PhD because I was like, I'm just going to sure. make this last Go forever. Yeah. Um, but so I was there for a few years. I was also teaching in the um, I was teaching undergraduate humanities and creative writing at the same time. And, and all the time you're doing this, what's funny to you? What's entertaining to you? What's humor to you? What are you reading? What are you watching, listening to? Did you go to the theater? Go to the movies all the time. Well, I was read. I've I've always been reading all of the time. But what were you reading? What were you reading that was funny? Um, I don't know. Perhaps a little bit of Donald Barthelme, Celine, Journey to the End of the Night. I never. I've never really read anything that's been exclusively funny. I like things that are very very serious, but that make you laugh consistently because I think that that's more truthful. 
and how life is, or at least that's how I experience life. Um, Were you a movie cover? Yeah, I like to go to the movies alone. That sounds so sad. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds perfect. Uh, well, you don't need anybody to go to the movies. It's you. No, I don't understand. You the whole world full of people up there on screen. Why do people go with other people? They just chew, and then they look at you, and you can hear them breathing. I don't understand going to the movies with another person. Um, I love going to the movies alone. That's the way to do it. And if you can, if you to go in the afternoon to a movie that's been out in a really, for a really long time, then you have the whole theater. Especially yeah. in New York City. I mean, when I was younger, I was living in a very small place. Now it's just small. But my early place was very small. So you go to this place, and it's this huge room all to yourself. I mean, it's like you're, you're like a it's king like a for a little while. like a private screening room. Yeah. Yes. Coming up, Smiles talks about what she used to do with many of her days. Drink heavily. Explore the Here's the Thing archives. I spoke with the late Elaine Stritch, who wasn't a native New Yorker but became one of the city's most iconic residents. When she retired and finally left the city, she knew what she was going to miss. The personality of human beings in New York. They are so opened and sec- uh, uh, they're not watching what they're doing. They're not, you know, they're, they're not watching their language. They're not watching anything. They're just going through life saying, what? Uh, yeah, all right. Oh, fuck you. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash fits.
This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Author Iris Smiles is honest about her life. Both of her books humorously deal with very real issues of alienation and self-abuse. Both of these were present in her life even when she was in graduate school and working jobs on the side. I was teaching um, creative writing and humanities at the, at the school to undergraduates, and I had picked up some some jobs uh, waitressing and as a hostess, but I wasn't good at those, so... Why? Because um, I had... Well, I was drinking really heavily. Right. Uh, so, and then they gave me this brunch... Also, I'm, I'm just not a good waitress, but they gave me this brunch shift, right? So I would go out and I would drink until four in the morning or five, and then I would have to be there later. And usually it was like... I don't know. I was coming off some kind of bender. And then I had to um, carry the drinks during brunch, which was really, it's really hard to carry a tray with drinks. And especially when you have the shakes. Yeah. So like the, the glasses are rattling yeah. all over the place. Unless you drink one. And, and, then. and then, I mean, so every, I mean, I spilled a lot of drinks or sometimes the customers would catch them in time. You know, because I would lower the t- I would lower the tray really slowly. Maybe people came there. It was kind of a game. See if you can catch the drinks when they. Well, one of the games was I was so bad at the job that the the manager was like, "Are you sure you should be in service?" But then every time he tried to broach the subject of my quitting, I would start to tear up because I was very sensitive and wanted to do well. And then it became sort of a game like, "Who am I going to quit or is he going to fire me?" The people around you know, the, like like whoever you were close with, friends, family. Did they know you had a drinking problem? Well, it was... Did I anybody mean, uh, uh, try to intercede there? No, because I was really great at drinking. I mean, there was a... That's why it was hard... Define that. It was hard to stop. I mean, I was a... That's like pretty much... That was my main thing. That was like my art form. So you the know, evening would begin how? Partying. Um, well, home? So, yeah. A little drink at home? Yeah, and maybe have some, you know, have some... Uh, have a friend over. I don't know. It just sort of, it's not that it would begin. It basically never stopped. You know? So right. to say where it begins is like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, birth. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but so it was hard to give up because that was so much of my identity and people around me loved it because I was always giving parties and I was creating a lot of fun. I mean, I wasn't a miserable drink. I was only, uh, drunk. I was, it was just hurting me. Right. Um, and also, I mean, the reason that I gave it up is because I wanted to become something. I, I wanted. I mean, I realized that, like, you know, you you drink and you've created a wonderful time, but what do you, what what have you made? And so, I I wanted to be a, a writer. I wanted to make something. So when did that change? When you did you decide that drinking was not compatible with who you really wanted to be? Well, it was really becoming harder and harder to keep doing it. I mean, physically. Um, the, the hangovers were becoming pretty bad. I just started to realize that I was kind of, uh, I was getting further and further away from anything that I ever wanted to do. And I had, you know, big dreams and I just was not getting anywhere near them. And, um, I figured either I have to revise my dreams, my aspirations, um, or make a change in my life in order to actually accomplish something. And you did make that change. I did, and it was kind of the most exciting, I'd say the biggest adventure and the most exciting time of my life was five years I spent, I'd completely retired from social life, and I was just kind of writing and uh, living like a monk. 
I mean, on the outside, this it seemed very boring. This is after graduate school. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, so you're around 26, 25, 26? I was, uh, I guess, 28, 29. When you went into the cave? When I went into the cave. And then I kind of came out uh, five years later with a book and happily got it published. And, and now I'm sort of, you know, trying to be a human again. <laughs> so what I wonder is when you go into this kind of cloister, when you go into the cave... Why don't you stay there if it was so uh, fruitful, ultimately? Um, what were you missing? It, it was great, but I, don't, I think, again, it was, a, it, it was an extreme, and it's not sustainable in the same way that... Uh, I mean, basically, I took everything that I was giving to, like my drinking and party lifestyle, and put it into, into work. And I don't think that, you know, this, the pendulum swings, and it has to come back. Another, and, another obsession, yeah. Yeah, and so it was. It was good, but now I'm th- I'm trying to sort of cultivate some kind of balance, and you know I, I want to have a have a personal life, so I'm trying to figure that out. Um, although it's I'm very in- intense, so it would be a lot. I I I, t- I long for the cave in truth, but uh, you know it's a new challenge to sort of be balanced in the middle, moderate. But doesn't sounds like terrible. Who wants to be moderate at anything? And you came out with a book called Iris Has Free Time. Right. What, what did you do? What, what do you do with a book if you're a writer and you write a book, and and your parents aren't at uh, Knopf or something, and or Simon and Schuster, and you you you're you're you with all of the defining things about who you are. What do you do with that book when you're done? Where do you go with it? Well, happily, I had met um, uh, a professor at City College. Um, th- who liked my work and encouraged me to keep writing. And so I showed it to him, and then he introduced me or referred me to a few different agents, which means that they you know, put my cover letter at the top and then rejected me before all of the other, all of the other people. Um, but then one of them, finally one of them uh, kind of took, me, took me on, and so we made our way and got the book out. Um, Got it out how? It was published uh, by uh, CounterPoint. Um, What were those meetings like for you when you're pitching a book or you're selling a book to them? What's it like for you, you know, out of a period of intense isolation, if you will, now you've got to be a bit more collaborative. Was that difficult for you to collaborate with them? um, It was terrible. Describe that. <laughs> uh, it was, How much did they want to change your book? Well, I mean, and that was that's why it was a little bit of a process. Uh, in the beginning, I I had seen a couple of uh, of agents who who liked it, but they were like, "Yes, but we we wanted you you need to change it all around and do this." And and so that was really scary because after f- five years, you think, "Well, this is my chance. Do I go agree with them or?" But I didn't want to change it. I didn't believe in that, so I took a risk and I. Um, sort of um, stuck to my guns, found another agent, finally found a, a publisher who didn't also didn't want me to change it. Um, and it was just sort of the same thing with my, with my second book. Um, I think, you know, it's, an editor is, is important, but it has to be the, the right editor. In your first book, did you have the right editor? Um, to some degree, even? Sure, sure. A, a woman. Yes, but I I th- I think that what what I mean is that lots of people in now I think uh, especially now there's there's this idea of like writing is much more collaborative, 
And so a lot of people put their hands on it, and I don't think that's a good idea. I think that comes from the comes from so many people are going to graduate school for writing, and so they have this idea that they're going to like workshop it and put it through the committee, and the more eyes it has, the better. And I don't think so. Uh, I don't think it should be collaborative at all. I think even you know, it really it, can't be, can it? No, it, and it gets dulled down and it should be you know individual and full of I mean I'd rather see you know better that it be imperfect but extravagant than some kind of like measured homogenized yeah when you've been working on your second book your your second book is coming out it just came out a month ago and was it the same publishers different Houghton Mifflin Harcourt was it better this experience um different the Counterpoint is a is an independent publisher, and so I was the big fish there. So they, you know, really gave it a a push. But then at the same time, because they're an independent publisher, they have less influence. So now I'm a small fish at a big house. Um, so how's that been? It's been it's been uh, g- great. I I like them, and I'm very excited because Houghton Mifflin is also the publisher of uh, Cliff's Notes. So I feel like that's one step closer to uh, publishing uh, Cliff Notes for my own book. Yeah, yeah you can. Which is important because you, you made people, a deal to do the Cliff Notes. Then for your people own book. won't even have to uh, read my book anymore. Right. They can just uh, you know study up on the symbolism and the foreshadowing, which is important. Without uh, actually, <laughs> and just you know, my book could disappear completely. The title of your first book was Iris has free time. Iris has free time came out when. 2013 June not too long ago and how would you and how would you characterize if at all how you've changed as a writer since your second book came out which is called dating tips for the dating unemployed, tips for the unemployed. Um, I, I think that when I write now I um, I used to uh, have to write a lot more before I found the beginning of something and um, now I kind of have a better sense of, you know, I can get there faster. So there's <laughs> there's less wasted. I, I'm just, you know, I, I guess... Uh, you're better at it. Yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, you're better at it. Yeah, I'm getting better with practice that happens. Where do you live now? Oh, I live in, um, in New York City over... Um, on the sort of the Middle East side, which is really nice over there. <laughs> I moved to around Beekman Place, which is, I moved there because I'm getting on in my years, and that's where uh, Auntie Mame lived. So I feel like I'm entering my Mame years, and it's a good place to uh, establish my spinster pad. I really like it. Do you it. want to be a spinster? Is that a goal? No. Um, no. Do you fear that like no one will get you? Do I fear no one will get me? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I would. Yeah, I would like to meet someone. Do you date men? I do date men. And when you date men, what like when you meet a guy that you like, what do you typically like about them? Well, that doesn't happen that often. I like. But the on those rare occasions <laughs> when it does happen, describe that. Um, you want someone who's clever, funny. No, and I don't generally don't go in for for looks. I've noticed I sort of have a pattern of dating kind of like a lot of like hideous creatures. Really? Yeah. Why? Um, I don't know. I guess they just tend to be more interesting, or I don't know. I don't think they're hideous, but I mean, according to right. the standard, <laughs> right? The standard. Um, I mean, they're not pretty boys, right? But but you don't care. And I guess I noticed a slight pattern. I what I go in for is like a man. 
I really like men Hemingway. very much. No, 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 because he was arrogant. I hate Hemingway. Okay. Oh, okay. I have a real thing against him. Okay. Um, but Mailer. So, no, I don't like him either. Okay. Because I, I don't like all those pretensions to uh, intellect and, and all of that. I don't, I don't like okay. arrogance. Okay, sorry. But so some, I, I've noticed uh, I have a pattern with sort of like, um, I guess like dummies, you know, because sometimes, you know, smarter men don't, they're, they're not, they, sometimes they're not, uh, they don't know how to handle me. They're nervous, but like a guy who's not that bright doesn't know enough to be nervous. He's missing. Right? So he's <laughs> he just know so, enough. So he's sort of like, you know, just he's just more he's just more simple, pro- proactive. Yeah, he's not like doubting. He's not worrying and more elemental. Yeah, I don't know. I'm. But you don't care nice? that you're single. No, I do. I'd like to meet someone. I'd like to meet someone nice. Wouldn't it be funny if you met your husband in a costume shop somewhere in Mineola? Oh, that sounds so romantic. That could be great. <laughs> now, before we have you read something for us, um, what are your dating tips for the unemployed? Because you yourself have never really been unemployed, have you? you? You, When you talk about your life, that arc is working, 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 and having a job, whether it was what you, whether it defined you, until you can get to the point now where you're a writer. Well, I've spent, yeah, I've been unemployed. I mean, it hasn't been, even my jobs didn't seem that, Serious. Even when you had a job, you didn't I've have a job. I've always felt unemployed, I guess is <laughs> the state thing. of mind. <laughs> I think so. And that's why I called the book that, because it's not all about being unemployed. But I think it's, you know, the idea, it's it's really, I guess, if you're trying to date when you're unemployed, it's like you're you're a mess, but you're trying, you have to make this presentation that you're attractive in some way. And I think I've always felt that way at my core. Even now when people ask me what I do, and I thought it would all be solved if I could say a writer or a novelist. And now I say, oh, I'm a writer. And I feel embarrassed. And all of a sudden, I, I feel like I'm lying or it's not true. Or I'm not writing enough. So I don't know if that feeling will ever be over. Yeah. So what are one of your dating tips for the unemployed? Well, um, so there's not actually any tips in, I mean, the book is not actually any tips. It's just it's stories that form a, a novel about, you know, kind of being in that awkward period and feeling unformed. But there's one piece where, there, where the character reads an article about dating tips for the unemployed. And the tips there, there's two. Um, it's never date anyone more or less miserable than you. Um, that's the one tip. Have an equivalency of misery. Exactly, because uh, even if if you go with someone who is less miserable than you, then eventually, and even if you can fake it for a while, eventually they'll find out that you're more miserable. And they it's just you have to be miserables date each other, non miserables date each other. How do you determine? This is the next tip. How do you determine who is a miserable and who is a non miserable? Because everyone goes around and presents themselves as a non miserable, pretty much. And, uh, Who's the, honest about their misery? Yeah, that's important. Very, very few. Yeah, lay the cards. <laughs> and on the one table. way that you can uh, determine that is how people answer the question, "What do you do?" So if you answer it honestly and you say, "I'm an accountant," or "I, you know, um, I wait tables," then that person's pretty okay with themselves. But if they answer it with some sort of clever thing, if they say, "Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I make the toast on the astronaut." Whatever I'm, the, an the astronaut toast maker. Right, right. <laughs> you know something. I prepare that, breakfast on the space station, <laughs> and they're obvious, and they don't actually do that. You know, but they respond with like too much charm, like compulsive charm, almost right. offensive charm. Like 
actual happy people don't feel the need to be that charming, which is, by, why, by the way, why I am so adorable and charming, because I've spent years right. <laughs> compensating Fake. for my misery. Um, but so, yeah, so that's how you can tell. So, for example, if someone responds, if, if you say like on on social media, on Facebook, things like that, if it says under occupation, if, if a person writes blowfish, right? then that person is definitely miserable. If a person writes bonds trader, that person is not miserable. So the bonds trader and the blowfish will never work out. That's what you need to know. You need somebody <laughs> in between. Do you have a little excerpt you want to read? I, I don't know. Let me see what to read. Whatever amount you read, it's fantastic. Just go with it. <laughs> Just do whatever you want to do. Um, okay, well, since I mentioned, uh, uh, I guess I'll read the family politic. Politics, I under right? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> okay. My family is downstairs yelling. They're not arguing, that's just how they talk. It's a Greek thing. That's what we say, but the truth is when we visit Greece, people remark on how loud we are. We respond, it's an American thing. I'm in my old room at my parents' house because I just got into a fight with my brother, Teddy. He was going on about the internet spelling the end of physical books. Lowering his voice to just a yell, he said, In the future, no one's going to want your precious little books, Iris. The book will be obsolete. I told him he was wrong, that people will always want books. Then he said, na 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 and I lost it and ran upstairs. So now I'm up here digging out old swimming trophies and dance costumes from under my bed. I have a trophy from 1992 that says, Highest Achiever. I dust it off and think about bringing it back to my apartment in Manhattan. Maybe I could turn it into a cigarette holder or something. I try on a blue ballet costume, and I'm excited to find it still fits. I look at myself in the mirror and think about Zelda Fitzgerald. She was my age when she took up ballet. Taking stock of my reflection, I understand for the first time her insanity. I turn in my tutu and notice my thighs are thicker than they used to be. I'm an oversized child, a monster of wilted potential. I put on my point shoes and attempt a few poses in front of the mirror. After a while, I change back into my regular clothes and head downstairs. Everyone is standing around the kitchen table, yelling at the top of their lungs, agreeing that Bush has betrayed the party. I hold up a hanger with the tutu on it and ask my mom, what's the best way to remove wrinkles from tulle? What do you want with that old thing now? Throw it out. No way, I say. I can't believe you had it all scrunched up in a bag. I could use it for a Halloween costume or my author photo. A web magazine is going to publish one of my stories this spring. Oh, God, she says, steam it, maybe. Hang it in the shower. I pull at the blue tool, worry a loose sequin, then sit at the end of the table and listen. I don't know how to talk to them. All they ever talk about is politics, which I've given up, having decided long ago that cultivating opinions about politics is against my better interests. I lean right economically, which, as a writer, would put me at odds with the artistic and academic communities in which I work. I recognize my views are somewhat paradoxical. For example, idealistically speaking, I'm a rugged individualist. 
The government is a necessary evil, I like to say, like boyfriends. But practically speaking, were it not for my parents, I would need government handouts more than anyone. I'm prime welfare material. In fact, trying to assuage my father's disappointment in the McCain candidacy last election, my mother told him, on the bright side, if Obama is elected, the government will help us support Iris. It's pretty well understood in my family that I can't take care of myself, which is why family values are so important to me. It's paramount that I marry so as to preserve my identity as a rugged individualist. If my parents ever cut me loose and I were forced to rely on the state for support, my whole ideology would crumble. I don't approve of social programs. FDR ruined this country with his pinko rescue plan. Let those in need pull up their socks, I say, all while dreaming of the day that my parents' burden, me, might be transferred to a rich husband, and I might continue to cultivate my pioneer spirit in safety. Fantastic. Fantastic. What's your favorite holiday? Halloween, of course. <laughs> Are you writing another book now? Um, yes, I'm, I'm completing, I'm starting a new novel, but I'm completing a volume of light verse, sort of uh, called Girls Who Wear Glasses. It's uh, poems about, um, you know, love and partying and, um, and sex. Um, but they rhyme. It's a sort of updated Dorothy Parker, Ogden Nash kind of thing. Rhyming. I mean, who doesn't love that? Iris Smiles' Dating Tips for the Unemployed is available in bookstores now. Oh, I forgot to give you your prize. Oh, my God, I'm so glad you reminded me. Okay. Now, tell, tell our listeners what exactly it is I'm getting. I won the blurb contest. The national blurb contest, that's right. For your book. For my book. And what? the blurb contest, the, the, the award ceremony was held where? At the Econo Lodge um, in New York City in the lobby next to the ice machine at 6 a.m. during their free continental breakfast. I was so sorry I couldn't make it. I told you I was crushed. I'm sorry couldn't you it. couldn't make it too. Did you accept on my behalf? I did. I did. did. May I see it? Yes. Um, so this is your whole prize package. It comes with an Iris Has Free Time bag. Oh, I, my God. I mean, talk um, about from, market. And then here's your award for your actual blurb. Oh, I love it. And, of course, there, uh, you know... Is a signed copy of the book? A signed copy of the book with your blurb printed on the back. Now, in the book in the, the book that's been published, is my blurb on the back of the book? That's the, it is. This that's is the, the, the book. There's not, a, there's not an alternate version. No, you didn't just have these made up for me as a gift. No. I'm on the book. You're, you've made it. Have you ever eaten Entenmann's? Oh, yes, I love them. As I, I say, I didn't read this book, and I didn't have to. On the cover, it said, Iris Smiles, and that's more than enough for me. Like logos for Coca-Cola, Fritos, and Entenmann's. Iris's name assures me that what's inside is so yummy. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. 
There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Hi, I'm music journalist John Wiederhorn, host of a new podcast, Backstaged, The Devil in Metal. It's a deep and sometimes dark dive into metal music and a look at how much the devil really played a part. With never-before-heard interviews and stories from Black Sabbath, Metallica, Judas Priest, Van Halen, Kiss, Megadeth, Motley Crue, and way more. Join me for stories on the origins of how Satan slithered his way into metal music, dominated the music legends, fired up the fans, and gave birth to the mantra, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We don't live forever, but the metal lives forever. And I think that's the greatest thing that we leave when we go off to the next place. Backstage, The Devil in Metal is available now. Listen and follow on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.